The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders Teach Season 2, our mini-series on medical education. I'm Dr. Molly Hoiblein, joined by my co-host, Dr. Ira Kurzanovskaya. On tonight's episode, we'll discuss teaching precepting models with Drs. Alika Ray and Ryan Nall. Before we get started with that, Ira, will you remind the audience what we do on the show? Sure, Molly. We are the internal medicine podcast for all things medical education. We use expert interviews to bring you teaching pearls and practice-changing knowledge to inspire the next generation of medical educators. And we have a fantastic conversation with our guests, Drs. Alika Ray and Ryan Nall tonight. And we cover various approaches to teaching learners in the ambulatory world, a really a potpourri of precepting models that we'll get into in a little bit. Dr. Alika Ray is an Associate Program Director of Ambulatory Training at the MGH Internal Medicine Residency Program and an Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. She has received MGH teaching awards and presented numerous national workshops on medical education. She's also a certified wellness coach and enjoys coaching physicians to find joy in medicine and in life. And Dr. Ryan Nall is an Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of General Internal Medicine at the University of Florida, where he is the Clerkship Director for the Third Year Internal Medicine Clerkship and Associate Director for the H. James Free MD Center for Primary Care Education and Innovation. Dr. Nall was recognized with the Hippocratic Award by the College of Medicine in 2018 and 2022 and the Leonard Tao Faculty Humanism and Medicine Award by the Gold Humanism Honor Society in 2019. And a reminder that most of our episodes are available for free CME credit through VCU Health CE for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. So without further ado, let's get to it. Hi, Alika and Ryan. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Let's start with some rapid fire questions to get to know you a little bit better. Um, So we can each have you give us a one-liner to describe yourself. And Ryan, I'll start with you. Great. Well, thanks for having us. I'm a 38-year-old clinician educator, dad of two, a lover of high-quality primary care, naturally leavened breads, and bike commutes. All at the same time. (laughs) All at the same time. (laughs) Pretty much most days. Carry the bread on your commute. I love that. It's only the best. And is naturally leavened bread... Sourdough. Sourdough. (laughs) Yeah. So for you in San Francisco, it's probably the only bread you eat, but for the rest of us, we're... You know, so I've had a sourdough culture for a couple of years now. Become very popular in the pandemic, but I was a little pre-pandemic and ahead. But it's it's a lot of fun. It's a relaxing and process of cooking bread and or baking bread is is really lovely. So I've enjoyed it. Lovely. One of my coworkers has three starters, and they each have different names. So she uh... <laughs> like they're actually mm-hmm. named like Mark and Joni. Exactly. And yes. Oh my yes. <laughs> yeah. And what about you, Alika? I am a primary care enthusiast, medical educator, wellness coach, wife, mother of two children and two dogs, who dreams of retiring from a long, happy career in medicine to join the crew of the USS Enterprise. Oh my gosh. Is that a Star Trek reference or... That is a Star Trek reference. Wow. So <laughs> I, try, good. I try to fit one in wherever I can. 
One of the dogs is named Spock. So that'll give you some idea of where we're at here. I love it. I love <laughs> it. Ryan's elevating our re-sourdough name. And then Alka is giving us our Star Trek references. I'm advanced. Well, on that front, actually, um, is there a book, movie, or show that y'all have recently enjoyed that you would recommend to our audience? Maybe, Alka, you want to go first? Sure. Um, there was a beautiful book a couple of years ago by Anthony Doerr called All the Light We Cannot See. And I'm actually going to recommend his latest, which was Cloud Cuckoo Land. Um, and it's a hilarious name, but it's a beautiful book actually weaving through multiple time periods, distant future, distant past, and shows the power and actually sort of the fragility of human stories. So it's for anybody who loves books and stories and some historical fiction, a little bit of science fiction. It's I loved it. Awesome. My mom just gave that to me and I haven't read it yet. So thank you for inspiring me to take it off the shelf. <laughs> yeah, go for it. Yes. And I just read um, an oldie, but a goodie, The Secret Life of Bees by Sue Monk Kidd. Uh, takes place in the civil uh, rights era South and is just a beautiful story um, and makes me want to start keeping bees, actually. Maybe to go with my sourdough bread. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And um, we'll start with you on this one, Ryan. Could you share something that you have changed in your practice or that you're working on practicing recently, maybe a teaching or communication technique or just something in, in your clinical practice that you feel like it's different this year compared to a few years ago? You know what I've really tried to get better at? I'm I'm not good at names. And so I've really, I think that's important for learners that we work with and, and for patients. So I direct our clerkship here, and one of the things I've implemented is actually pre-clerkship getting everyone's preferred names, pronouns, and actually phonetic spelling so that I can kind of hopefully start on the right foot and be able to learn the names from day one so I can kind of connect with people. I think it always feels good to hear your name, and uh, so I'm, I'm working on that. I'm not very good at it, but I'm, I'm trying. And your name pronounced correctly. <laughs> yeah. So that's a really good one. Um, I would say that um, when I went through a coach certification process and had to do a lot of coaching training, and as I'm practicing, I'm learning a lot about communication techniques. But the biggest thing that I learned that really struck me was the levels of listening and like level five empathic listening. And it made me realize how often I really just listen to give advice. I think it's an occupational hazard as a primary care doctor, potentially, because that's what people are often looking for. But what I'm learning is that when I try to hold back and just keep listening, people come up with great solutions on their own. And I give better advice once I've listened for a little bit longer. So I, I think it works well with mentees, with students, patients, and even family and friends. Um, so I think listening like that is so rare in our current lives. So I'm just, I really want to get better at it. I feel like we could do a whole new podcast episode on listening. Like I want to kind of break down the levels and then also uh -huh. hear about what it's like to be a wellness coach and how that kind of fits in. Cause th those are, I feel like those things go hand in hand. Yeah, it's, it's true. Well, in that vein, kind of thinking about um, communication and feedback, I wonder if y'all could share some meaningful advice or feedback that you've received along the way in your career. Oh, I can go ahead. Uh, one of the, favorite piece of advice I ever received was just to discover an interesting fact about your patient and, and then share it with your team. And I try to, sometimes I'll phrase this as, you know, ask patients, you know, what makes you famous? Everybody's famous for something. What are you famous for? Um, and try to learn that. And it's, I find it always 
amazing how much it changes the dynamic, especially in when we're kind of in an inpatient setting, but also in the ambulatory setting, as you kind of share these humanistic aspects, um, I think it improves the care we we provide our patients. So um, that's something I've I've always held with me and, and try to do. I'm going to write that down. I love that. What makes you famous? <laughs> um, I have advice that um, my my program director, who's now retired, uh, I'm still working in the same program, but the wonderful Hassan Bazari, and he used to tell us not to compare our insides to other people's outsides. And um, I tried to look up the source of this quote, by the way, which is either the writer Anne Lamott or the actor Rob Lowe, which is a strange two options. I'm not sure. But in any case, working, I think, in a field of high-functioning perfectionists, it is a really grounding reminder to me so many times, even for my for myself when I'm questioning my role in the world, my place in the world, but also to see the shiny people around me as real human beings who have their own worries and fears. So I, I've always loved that saying. Those are both great. Thank you. Uh, let's jump into um, picks of the week. Ira, do you have one? I do. I went to a uh, exhibit or I guess an experience called Pop-Up Magazine. I don't know if y'all have heard of this, but it's basically a storytelling spectacle, I guess is what they call it on their website, but it's across uh, North America. They have uh, shows in San Francisco um, or Oakland and um, Los Angeles, New York and Portland, Oregon. They expanded this, uh, this spring issue. And basically imagine reading a magazine but you're actually experiencing the magazine articles. So there's one about kind of science, one about nature, one about something entertainment related, something about news related. And I laugh and cry and laugh some more every single time I go. And there's usually something interactive, like pre-COVID, they gave us um, chocolate chip cookies, like a sample, because the article or the experience was about this person who had gone across the country trying to find the best chocolate chip cookie. And then, you know, for hundreds of people, they got little samples of that best chocolate chip cookie. And this one last night was uh, just incredible. There was a whole feature about Elvis tribute artists, also known as ETAs. And there's ETA conferences across the country. Like all of this was blowing my mind. And the person presenting then did an Elvis impersonation. Anyway, it's incredible. So I would just, if y'all have, there's a show in um, New York City in June and I think Portland and LA, but, and there's going to be like a summer one and a fall one, but I'd really encourage folks to just get out there and basically experience a storytelling kind of magical spectacle, I guess is what they call it, with multimedia. That sounds so fun. Incredible. Is this on stage? Are you, yes. in, you're a part of it? Uh, I is... wish I was a part of it. And that would appeal to like all of my like, kinest, you know, active energy. But uh, no, this is on stage with like incredible wow. storytellers, journalists, um, comedians, just people who have done incredible research. There's one about lightning bugs. I'm not going to give everything away because technically okay. you're not supposed to share it, but um, it's just, it's They're fascinating. coming after you, Ira. I know, right? <laughs> I didn't post, I didn't post the program. Because I was like, are we allowed to post the program on social media? But the actual event space is just beautiful. So very cool. Well, that is more fun than mine, I think. But mine is still fun. <laughs> I'm sure it is. <laughs> um, so mine is another podcast. Uh, this podcast will kill you. And it's um, done by PhD and an MD PhD who choose a disease each week and dive into like the biology of it and also the natural history and the evolutionary history of you know why these are pathogens and how they've evolved alongside humans and then move into the current day of like how this is impacting our uh, socially and how kind of 
socioeconomic factors around the world are impacting the outcome of the disease. And it's just a really deeply researched and but also like fascinatingly fun for nerdy people like myself who kind of want to dive deep into tropical diseases or rare infectious diseases. So I would highly recommend this podcast will kill you. I love that. And the hosts, Molly pointed out, are having an awesome rapport. So they're kind of our um, aspirations or, uh, I don't know, cool. host goals. Is that possible? Is that a host thing goals. that we do? I host think so, goals? yes. <laughs> like couple, couple goals, but co-host couple goals. Yeah, yeah. I think it's good. I love it. <laughs> All right. Well, let's hop into a case from Cash Like Memorial. Uh, Ira, do you want to start us off? Totally. So we have Joe here, who is a second year attending in the same clinic that he did his residency. And he's noticing that his precepting with residents tends to last a while. Um, And residents are often kind of looking around the room towards the end of their discussion, which often lasts around 15 minutes. And they look like they really need to get back to their patient. And Joe just wonders if there's something that he can do differently to make this exchange and the precepting experience more efficient, but still drop an occasional teaching pearl or two. So in thinking about Joe, I wonder, um, Ryan, maybe we can go to you first. In thinking about the challenges that come up for uh, preceptors and maybe pitfalls that occur during uh, teaching in the ambulatory space, I was just wondering if you can comment on maybe what could be happening for Joe and like maybe the barriers and um, ways to overcome them. Yeah, absolutely. I think time management is certainly one of the biggest challenges in the outpatient setting. We typically have these predetermined blocks of time appointments with our patients. And, you know, that once we start getting behind can really create a lot of anxiety and stress for our learners. And I would argue once you're behind and the resident's feeling stressed and the patients are getting a little upset, your opportunities for learning and and teaching start to go out the window. So this is what I I call the Goldilocks principle of ambulatory teaching, trying not to do too much, too little, but just the right amount. And um, it sounds like Joe, I'm thrilled at Joe as a preceptor because he's really trying to make efforts and it sounds like he's he's going the extra mile for teaching. Um, But I think the residents he's probably worked working with are getting frustrated, as you can see in the case. And I, I doubt a lot of those teaching points are landing quite like he'd like to see them. On the other side, you know, we can do too little. And certainly that's a common problem we run into the uh, in the ambulatory setting where uh, preceptors just get into the habit of what do I need to know to help come up with a plan for this patient and, and move the, the learner through and not really taking advantage. So we want to really focus in on how can we help facilitate that learner in the space to not only take great care of patients, but also grow in their knowledge base in ambulatory medicine? So um, I know in this podcast, we're going to dive into some of the models that I think can really be helpful in this way. Some other things I see, you know, I think the time management piece is a huge one for residents. I work with a lot of student learners, and I think one of the challenges we'll often see with these uh, with students is uh, preceptors really trying to overshoot in terms of having them see way too many patients. I'm not giving the, the appropriate amount of time to kind of preview, orient themselves to the patient, and not enough time to kind of reflect afterwards. So I think more can sometimes be less in that in that setting. I, I totally agree. And I think one of the things that happens when you're going too fast is that you also tend to just give the plan. So I've definitely fallen into that 
pitfall and watched others where the resident does the whole presentation and the preceptor says, that's great. So we're going to. And so you don't even give the resident even that piece of learning, which is to give the plan. The only other thing I would add about the outpatient setting is that really residents tend to be much less comfortable in the outpatient setting. They are much more comfortable in the inpatient setting. They're spending probably three times as much time there, probably at least. And, um, and the people think of inpatient wards as chaotic, but actually clinic has its own flavor of chaos that can happen. Part of that is, of course, what Ryan described, that time pressure, patients are waiting, they're getting angry. But part of it is also that every moment is a little bit unpredictable. A patient's coming in for an annual physical, but then they show up and they're actually having chest pain or they have hypertensive urgency. And so these kinds of things can really derail your teaching or derail your plan for teaching. And you can adapt, but that's part of what we're going to talk about. Great. I think that's a perfect setup to kind of think about different models for precepting in clinic. Alika, will you kind of talk us through what the traditional approach for precepting is? Sure. Um, I think traditional models, I think we've all, we've all experienced it. We've probably all done it. It's focused really on clinical supervision. The traditional model is about taking care of the patient and for the preceptor to provide that supervision that's necessary to take safe care of the patient. So it's, you know, the learner provides information and then implements the plan. And in the middle, the preceptor gets as much more information as they need and then kind of bless the plan or even give the plan. So there is not usually deliberate teaching. Um, sometimes the teaching is very specific to the case, like let's do this for this patient, but it's not generalizable to other cases in the future. There's usually no feedback in this model other than the resident sort of gleaning from the preceptor changing the plan that that's the kind of indirect feedback that the learner might get. And it can be very efficient. Um, it can also not be efficient depending on if the teaching is getting kind of a little bit long and maybe focused on the patient, not generalizable, but long. So, but usually it's more efficient. And, um, and it just remains unclear what the resident knows in terms of medical knowledge, what their reasoning is. Uh, so all of that remains a little obscure. So that's, that's the traditional model that I think we recognize. And then just to kind of contrast that, I wonder, Ryan, could you kind of walk us through potentially a few other models that um, have come into play recently uh, with all the kind of really exciting abbreviations that come with new models and frameworks? Yeah, I love the title for this uh, podcast, the Putpuri of Ablatory Teaching Models. Um, yeah, so I think there's a, a, a few different ones that we're going to dive into here, and I I like it because I, I don't think you any one of them necessarily have to be kind of locked to in its entirety, but I think they all give us some really critical pieces that help guide us in, I think, an effective ambulatory teaching session and, and help us take care of better care of patients. So the first is titled The One Minute Preceptor, um, was uh, published in Clinical Teaching 1992 by Nahar. This really focuses on five micro skills um, that we should implement with our, our learners. First, as we start a, a, a learning about a patient, getting a commitment. And that might be, you know, as we think of it as, you know, certainly what's your working diagnosis, but it could also be someone coming in with uncontrolled diabetes and what do you want to do in terms of their next therapeutic option to help get their A1C under control. After you get a commitment from the learner, you need to try to take a step back and not implement or, or push your, your thoughts on them, but really start to ask some questions to help understand the evidence that's supporting that commitment. And I think that's the really nice part of this that we often jump over here 
is really allowing the space to listen, to hear what their thought process is, and how their clinical reasoning is coming together to come to that final diagnosis. The third micro skill is to teach a general principle. So this really focuses on not a big lecture that's going to eat into the next their, their next patient's time, but a really short, succinct teaching pearl that they can then carry with them. And that can really run a gamut of what you could, you could look for there. Lots of opportunities, and I'd argue every case has a teachable moment. Finally, uh, the last two really come back to feedback. So the fourth micro skill is reinforcing what went well. And then the fifth is correcting errors and omissions. And I know all of us struggle with feedback. This is something that can be uncomfortable. And of course, if there's really critical feedback, I think it's always important to, to think, are you in a big room with a lot of folks that it may be better to wait till a later time? But I love how this is built into this model to remind us with each encounter, with each interface, there's opportunities to you know, reinforce uh, what really went well in this and, and then, of course, correct things that didn't. The other model uh, that's worth, I think, discussing is um, the, uh, SNAPS. So, and Ryan, uh, maybe I'll interrupt you for yeah. one second because just sure. as it's SNAPS teaser, but I wonder for the one-minute preceptor, just because Alka told us, you know, there's chaos in clinic and we're all getting to figure out how we can teach. Is there like a opportune moment for the one-minute preceptor where you're like, this is the this is the place to use or this is a situation where I can use this with the particular learner? Yeah, you know, I think the one-minute preceptor is a pretty good default strategy um, to, to, to go back to. I think when your resident's coming in rushed, you're looking at their schedule, you see they've got three people waiting, it may be time to move to the traditional model, figure out what we need to do to get the, get the learner, and then debrief after the session to figure out, you know, how can you better support what went wrong, um, what are some teachable moments as it relates to the the clinic session. But I think the one-minute preceptor is a really uh, nice base model. I think it lets us explore the learner's thought process um, and really understand their reasoning. It encourages us to add in that teachable principle and then provide some feedback. Alec, I don't know if you have other thoughts on when you might implement that. I mean, I think it's a great model for early learners because it's really the preceptor can guide the model. So you, the, the learner doesn't actually need to know what the model is because the preceptor can really guide it. So you can you can focus on making sure you hit each micro skill, right? And the other thing I love about it is that at the end, when you do the correction piece, that's often a place where I try to, I, I have kind of a principle about, I feel like our residents do this a lot where, as, especially as they get advanced, they come into the room and they say, oh, this is shingles. Or this person has definitely a pneumonia and we're all set. You really probably don't even need to see the patient. And in those types of situations, I kind of say, can you at least come up with, I want three things. Even if they're ludicrous, even if we cannot make them fit, you can tell me why they don't fit, but I want three things. And so I often find that third part of the OMP, is that's how I default uh, do it, is often if I can't think of another correction, I at least say, okay, what else could we have thought of? Uh, because that's my, my fear is that we're going to anchor on that first thought that, that we have in terms of the differential. It, well, and it feels like the omission or the correction is actually like addressing the cognitive heuristic that may be coming in of like anchoring and just exactly. trying to expand. It almost becomes like the third step and the fifth step are together because the teaching pearl can be like to not anchor in that way, which many of us do. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think this this model is is really nice for early attendings too, because it is something that you can have on a little pocket card or a sticky note that you pull out during precepting, and just to remind yourself to 
sort of ask some of those really simple questions that can apply to so many different clinical settings. So I, I remember learning this as an early attending and have, have definitely found it useful. Maybe we should move on to the SNAPS model unless anyone has other comments about One Minute Preceptor. Absolutely. So SNAPS is, um, in kind of relationship to the One Minute Preceptor, SNAPS is much more learner-driven and really focuses on more of the faculty member as a facilitator. And this is, I think, as we'll see, better for maybe that more advanced learner. Um, And so what SNAP stands for is uh, first to summarize the case, N, narrow the differential to two or three options, A, analyze the differential by comparing and contrasting, P, probe the preceptor by asking questions and uncertainties, um, this is a real difference between our prior model, right? This is the learner coming to us, identifying what questions, uncertainties, difficulties, challenges they're having with the case. The second P is to plan management. And then the final S is to select a case issue for self-directed learning. So again, this is the learner assessing what it is that they want to go on and, and learn a little bit more about. I think SNAPS, as I, as I mentioned, I think this is great for somebody who is a little bit further along in their training. They have maybe a little bit more advanced in their ability to kind of self-assess and reflect on the things they do and don't know. I think this can be challenging for earlier learners who don't have that ability or are still really trying to put things together. I find myself reaching for this with those um, kind of uh, late second or third year residents who are, you know, on the right path and and really able to be really self-efficient and uh, sufficient, self-sufficient in, in clinic. I, I love when my senior residents use this technique and I it really helps me as the preceptor kind of get a sense of where they're at and actually give them helpful information rather than me just trying to teach some pearl that they already are aware of. So I, I think it is a great one when those learners are advanced enough to be able to do that. I agree. I also feel like sometimes this one turns into snaps, like the one of the P's goes at the very beginning because I feel like some of the learners come up and they're like, I really have a question about, you know, and then they they insert that uncertainty about the case that you had mentioned, Ryan. And so it becomes like that kind of frames me to focus in on, okay, I need to think about how I approach that uncertainty while I'm listening to them summarizing the case and kind of narrowing the differential. So not that we're going to rename it, but like snaps doesn't really roll (laughs) off the tongue as well as snaps. I mean, but we could. We At could this do point, that. What's another P in there? I mean, <laughs> it'll like, be your next no, publication, think... Ira. It'll be called right. Ope Snaps. <laughs> yeah, Ope Snaps. <laughs> Just throw it all in there. So I, I do the exact same thing, and I I think this is great. Where I'll often tell my you know later residents, like I'm your consultant. Like what is what is that question? And I I totally agree with you. I think framing it, this is what I'm not sure about with this case beforehand really helps set the stage for for that discussion. And I think it it allows the resident to feel like they're, you know, much more independent in the management of the patient, which of course they should at that time. Yeah, I think I find that some of our senior residents almost automatically fall into this and you can do a little bit of guidance, but it is really nice to see them actually come up with differential, analyze them. And then the piece that I find often doesn't happen is the sort of deliberate at the end, uh, coming up with something to read or do. Uh, that part to me, because it doesn't automatically, it's not a part of the process of the day, right? So I think that's where sometimes the preceptor really does need to maybe step in and say, okay, so what can we learn from this? Or what might you want to look into. Uh, or sometimes I offer to, and I say, you know, we didn't really know the answer to this. So 
while you're seeing your new patient, let me let me look this up for both of us. Great. And let's move on. Alika, could you tell us a little bit more about this exciting new precepting model? Is it PIP or PIPP? What's the yeah, cool way? There's always P's. I think there have to be as many P's as possible. This one now has three P's, which is PIPP, precepting in the presence of the patient. And I think this is our chance to get away from using bedside teaching, which is what it's been called before. But I think there was a rebellion about are there really bedside in the outpatient setting? So we're doing PIP. Um, so precepting in the presence of a patient is a model that's basically, as I said, the outpatient equivalent of a bedside presentation. The components are in the residencies, the patient in the, in the office just as they normally would. And they often will either go get the preceptor or page the preceptor to the room. So that's kind of nice because it's already a little time efficient. The preceptor can finish doing maybe another precepting or something and then come to the room. And then the presentation happens right in front of the patient. The preceptor can then ask any clarifying questions, perform any additional exam maneuvers, and then review the plan with the resident right in the room and add teaching pearls in the room and then potentially debrief later with the resident if necessary. So that's that's PIPP. And, you know, people have looked at it a little bit. There are a couple of the two most commonly cited studies are in family medicine clinics. And what's really the reason to think about the evidence a little bit is it's kind of amazing because it actually increases time spent face to face with the patient. Not surprising given the structure, but it can keep the length of the visit either the same or even lower. So one of the studies showed that the patients had three more minutes face-to-face with their doctors, but the whole visit was actually two minutes shorter. So in the whole time-rushed environment that we're describing, that's actually really a boon. So efficiency-wise, it can be fantastic, and it's very patient-centered. And there are a bunch of other pros and cons that we can get into. And have you been implementing this? I implemented sometimes. I have one preceptor in my clinic who does it all of the time. And for me, I've found that it's a little bit learner specific. Some of my learners balk at it because they feel that they're going to have to really watch their language. It might, maybe their preceptor is going to take over the visit. Maybe the patient's going to take over the visit because they're going to say, aha, I have the attending in front of me. Now I'm going to change my entire story. Tell a new story. We've all watched that happen. Um, so I think we ha- you have to kind of get some buy-in from the learner. This is interesting, actually, because there's a psych. Uh, this was done in a psychiatry clinic with with learners, and you'd think that they'd be really nervous about it, uh, but the patients actually preferred preferred exam room teaching, which is interesting. So clearly, the communication concerns that the learners had, and which they expressed actually in that study, wasn't really borne out with patients. They enjoyed having more time with the doctors. So I try to share that and talk about that, and um, and try to do it when I can. Yeah. Yeah, and I've I've found this is great with uh, the students I work with in clinic. You know, with with notes counting for billing, there needs to be face to face review of physical exam and other components, um, which you would have repeated as well. So by joining them often in the exam room here as they present, or actually observing them if it's an earlier patient and I'm not in with another. A lot of this can be better facilitated. And I found in general, as long as I can convince the patient not to look at me and start giving me all the history and just kind of focus on the student, I, uh, I found it, patients love it and the students really enjoy more of that observation and certainly enables me to give much more feedback on their communication style, body language, so much that I wouldn't have had an opportunity to provide feedback on had I been out in the conference room waiting on them to come back. 
Yeah, I completely agree about the early learner and the advanced learner. This works for both because early learners, you pick up on all kinds of body language, the ease of the use of the electronic health record, even sometimes I can watch them struggling with things and I realize, oh, they need more help with that. And then with the later learner, you can role model motivational interviewing, you can watch them counseling. Um, there's, there's a lot that you can glean when you do this. Ira, have you been practicing this since you heard about it at SGM? I know since I went to Alec and Ryan's uh, the workshop, uh, I've tried one time with a student and uh, well, punchline, the patient did start talking entirely to me and then I <laughs> had to redirect them to the student doctor and then I had to extricate myself <laughs> because at one oh, point no. <laughs> I was like, I just need to remind you who the fo like focus is of the experience. And I guess that actually brings me to my question, which is we talked about this a little bit earlier which is kind of how do we decide amongst the potpourri of ambulatory teaching models? And y'all had mentioned that sometimes when people are rushed, we default to the traditional model. And then perhaps with kind of early learners, the one minute preceptor might be our go-to. And then for more advanced learners, we who are going to direct probably some of their precepting and learning in clinic, we might try out SNAPS. And I would just love to hear from both of you how you make that call and that triage uh, of, of teaching models. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's certainly something you want to get comfortable with. And I think this evolves over time. And especially as you get to learn your learners some and have some experience, most of us have some core set of residents and students that we're getting an opportunity to hopefully over time get comfortable with. You know, I think we need to be careful not to feel like you're an absolutely stuck on one model. And a lot of these have some very similar pieces to them in terms of really getting that commitment from the learner, allowing the space to hear their clinical reasoning and analysis. And so you may go a little bit back and forth between the models and maybe you do the one minute preceptor in the room with the patient. And I think that is an absolutely reasonable way to do it and, and provides a nice structure. Obviously, you may not provide that corrective feedback in front of the patient, but a lot of that can be done there. I think this, for me, SNAPS is the one that I probably don't reach for as much, and I kind of reserve that for the particular learner that I think is kind of ready to step into that role and really prepared and kind of coming in with that diagnosis ready. And I've got to maybe slow things down and try to try to teach the, you know, if it's not shingles, what is it, as Alika was mentioning. So that's kind of really how I triage Alec, I don't know what your thoughts are on, on kind of how do you go back and forth. I was thinking about this. It reminds me a lot of um, we teach in a leadership curriculum. We teach Goldman's leadership styles. I don't know if you're aware of these, but so this great Harvard Business School, or I think it's a Harvard Business School article by Daniel Goldman, and he writes about leadership styles, and there's a bunch of them, and he put, calls some of them positive, some of them negative. But all of them have a place in depending on the circumstance. So even at the most negative leadership style is great in a crisis, for example. And so that's sort of how I think about these. If the patient's acutely decompensating, you're going to probably not even really do the traditional model. You might just take charge. And um, if the resident's running late, you're going to rush through because the most important thing to role model is that the next patient deserves our time. We're not going to spend a lot of time right now. We're going to keep things moving. So I think there's always something that the learner can take away. But sometimes even when I'm rushed, I'll just be walking to the room with the resident and I might choose that moment to just have a short discussion. One And the one thing that I really try to stick to is to always ask the resident for their plan. No matter, you know, let everything else go out the window. But the one thing is to always say, okay, what do you want to do? What do you think is going on? 
if I don't let that discussion go on for 10 minutes, you know, I probably should never do that. So I might shorten it depending on the circumstances. But sometimes there's just like the essence of it that you can preserve. But the one thing all of these have in common is deliberate, deliberate practice and intention. So I think if you carry that, you can choose any tool and any part of these and, and make it work for you. I love that because I feel like often all jokes aside and trying to plan a new model of snaps, um, the, I think the whole <laughs> point of that is that it is like y'all mentioned on the spectrum and kind of there are still core features of precepting that do need to happen. You need to come in with an intention, with kind of a, a goal and to always hear the learner kind of really justify what they're thinking and then give a sense of their plan and what they're going to do so that y'all, so you're able to kind of follow up on that and I just, um, I really appreciate kind of those core, the core skills and that there's a place for all these models, a la the Goldman leadership styles. That's great. I wonder, you know, we kind of talked about how the model selection may change based on learner uh, stage or stage of development. Do you have a way, um, Alka, maybe of setting up kind of how you're going to teach about a particular topic um, or kind of that teaching pearl as part of the one minute preceptor? Do you have a a way you do that um, usually? Do you mean in terms of sort of thinking of a topic and and choosing something to talk about? Uh, So this is where I... um, I really believe that we all have to have a lot of grace for ourselves. We're teaching in, you know, clinically chaotic environments. We're human. We probably just came from clinic ourselves. And so I try to remember that probably anything that I am thinking about and I'm assuming that I know and the learner may not know is worth teaching. So I find that the topics, we often focus on medical educa- medical knowledge topics, right? So we're trying to think about the antibiotic or the particular disease process, and that's the obvious thing to teach about. But I also think you can go into other areas. And one of, one of the areas that I think is really fun to go into is sort of hypotheticals. And this is great for actually advanced learners, but if someone is kind of hitting the nail right on the head, like they are getting everything right in the, in the presentation, you are thinking, gosh, what can I add here? That's when I like to ask questions about, like, what if, when would you, uh, why, and that can take you places, you know. So, for example, if they're if they're seeing a patient with a cough and they're not getting a chest X-ray, and you can say, okay, well, when would you get a chest X-ray, or who would you get a chest X-ray for? What could be different in the presentation that would change your mind? What if they had a fever? Um, what if they were on and uh, on a biologic? I mean, there's all kinds of questions that you can then come up with. So I love that. And the other thing I love is teaching about process. They often feel like fish out of water in clinic. And one of the things that I find our residents are most stressed out about is they're very medically competent, but they don't know how to get things done. So we come up with a whole plan and then they're like, well, how do I get a visiting nurse to come to the clinic? Or um, what is ambulatory blood pressure monitoring and where does that happen? And so I'm very happy with myself if I can do one point that's actually about something like that. It's totally generalizable. It will empower them to take better care of their patients. And that's part of being a physician, systems-based practice. Yeah, and I, I love that what if. I've, um, that's something I think that even when you're struggling, going to a what if, a why. And what I, I think is great about some of these models is that they really get at that clinical reasoning, the thought process piece, much better than a traditional model. The traditional model very much is rooted in exchange of facts and a determination, whereas the uh, one-minute preceptor and SNAPS is, is opening the space for 
discussion of thought process and clinical reasoning. Certainly, we, we value that so much in, in medicine and it allows us to really have a kind of a look into our, our learner's mind and how they're processing and what's going on. And for both of these models, there's actually some data that would suggest that they actually help us with this. So in terms of teaching points, Irby in 2004 an um, academic medicine studied this with the one-minute preceptor and found that the teaching point was much more focused on differentials, diagnostic evaluation versus a traditional model, which uh, focused much more on the history taking, risk factors, presentation skills. And actually in another study, they found that the one-minute preceptor led to the correct diagnosis uh, in a couple of cases that were randomized. And the same with SNAPs, much more likely to explore differentials and justification than our traditional model. So I think in these studies, this really pans out that we can start these conversations. And I think it, it really opens up to a whole nother level for us of teaching um, and insight into our learners. And I love that the, there's not only evidence behind it that you just shared, Ryan, but also to your point, Alka, about the process, teaching on the process. It harkens back to one of our episodes from season one with Drs. Emily Abdullah and uh, Gurpreet Dhaliwal, where we talked about management reasoning. And there's literally a subset of that. That's kind of the like how you get things done reasoning and being able to teach about that and really share the, that process with the learner to even push them a little bit further. I would actually argue it almost causes distress for them when they know the right thing to do, but they can't quite figure out how to get it done for their patients. So it's actually a very compassionate thing to teach about because they want to get the right thing done for their patients. Uh, and if you can help with that, that's that's helpful for them. Wonderful. And we kind of talked about this a little bit with the SNAPS model in, in terms of getting residents or learners to think about how they're going to advance their learning after clinic or retain their, their knowledge. Ryan, do you have any tips for that beyond kind of getting them to think about a resource that they're going to read up on afterward? Is, is there a role for teachback or other techniques to improve knowledge retention? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the few things that I've I tend to do in clinic a few times when we've had our kind of our big clinic space, which tended to be pre us all living in these little silos during the pandemic. But one fun thing to do is have everybody when you have a big group have sticky notes of teaching points, learning points throughout. And you just kind of have a board where everybody kind of throws it up through the session. And that's really fun to kind of at the end kind of hot wash the session and, and review all of of the kind of learning that happened because there's there's just so much it's so rich you know we we see so often so many more patients than an inpatient team and each of those patients has opportunity and so it really takes advantage of that other opportunities I, you know when i'm especially i'm working one on one with a student i really try to debrief the session at the end, even if it's just for a few moments, you know, what did you learn? Here are some things that, um, you know, I think you can do better. What's some feedback for me? What can I do better next time? So we're all hopefully creating this really nice learning environment and recognizing those things that we've, we've learned and the ways we've grown throughout the session. I love those. I had to laugh a little bit because our clinic has a post-it note board of things your patient is doing during telehealth visits. And it's like clipping their toenails, <laughs> driving and smoking a joint. And <laughs> I think yours sounds higher yield. <laughs> you know, there, we've got to have, you know, those moments. I know. That's, That's so funny, Molly. We also have like a patient quote board too. So I also <laughs> thought that when, uh, when Ryan mentioned the board, I was like, so many boards, different subjects, different topics. <laughs> Alika, what about you? 
Um, I would I would agree with Ryan. I don't have a whole lot to add, but one thing I guess I would say is just simply yeah, following up with a resource, emailing with the resource. But the thing with residents um, in my clinic is that sometimes you have continuity. I mean, I have my own residents that I have continuity with. So sometimes in just in a future session, you have the opportunity to hearken back to something that you talked about a week ago or a month ago. And so that's a nice way to do it, but nothing other than that specifically. And then how do you, how do you think about your own self-improvement? Like what kind of continued medical education resources might you recommend? Are there things that you use to try to hone your teaching skills? In a broader sense, you have both done a lot of teaching the teacher through SGM and other venues. And um, how do you recommend that we both teach ourselves and teach each other to to do these better? Um, I'll start with just sort of my own self-improvement. The first thing I would say you guys have mentioned already is feedback from learners. It's um, it's hard to get candid feedback from learners. You're sitting one-on-one, they're looking at you as the attending, but sometimes I'll just start with something that I already think I didn't do well or that I'm working on and specifically ask them about that. That's one way to kind of get them started and they feel a little more comfortable because they're like, okay, so she doesn't think she's perfect. Um, so maybe I can say something real. It's really hard to get candid feedback. I've gotten some, it's hard to hear, but sometimes it's game-changing. So it was for me at least. Another thing I want to talk about a little bit is peer observation. So um, I have a colleague, Kathleen Finn, she published on this with inpatient attendings. It's really a wonderful tool. It builds community among educators. And the really important thing to remember about peer observation, I think, is that what, it's a little counterintuitive, but unlike direct observation with learners, the observer isn't there to really necessarily wag their finger at the observee and say, oh, this is how you should have done that. It's really about stealing from someone else their best practices and, and good habits. So we always, always talk about that when we talk to um, peers, faculty peers, to, to observe each other, is that, well, you're there to learn yourself and to take some of the best practices. And then that person gets to observe you and take some of your best practices. And if feedback is requested, of course, you know, feel free to give it, but it's not a, a punitive sort of or evaluative process. It's really a community building and learning exercise. So I think those are those are really good. And then in terms of faculty development, there are local faculty development opportunities. Sometimes we're the ones running them, but we can also learn from them. And then national faculty development resources, really workshops like the SGIM workshop that Ira went to. I've really enjoyed those. Those have been fantastic for me. Going to SGIM, going to the to APTM, which is the Program Directors in Internal Medicine. There are wonderful examples of workshops where I've learned a lot. And podcasts like this one. <laughs> Oh my gosh, this is like meta promotion. You're promoting our podcast within the podcast. Thank you. And we're doing it. Oh, that was yeah. amazing. And oh my gosh. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, self-improvement, I think it gets back to deliberate practice as we've we've kind of brought up. It's identifying a, a need and a goal and really working on that, um, getting feedback on it, whether it's from a peer or for a learner who's willing to be candid from you, which I know can be a real challenge. Um, and then, you know, working through those cycles to process. One thing where I precept, I'm generally around some other faculty in a room. So it, if I'm, you know, uh, willing to kind of go out and say, hey, I'm trying to work on this. Could you, if you're not precepting with another person, kind of listen in 
And that's that if you don't have a nice setup for peer observation, that can be a, a strategy to get some some pointers and some feedback. And I'm always listening to the other preceptors to trying to learn different things. You know, my mentors, you know, as much as I can kind of be around them and see the way they handle it, it's always uh, an experience of of growing and improvement. And just being, I think, being honest with yourself when you, you know, phoned it in or just um, didn't quite, you know, hit it the way you wanted to that afternoon. I think those are always kind of important to be honest and to kind of reflect on that. In terms of teaching the teacher, you know, workshops that I've done some workshops on precepting or feedback, and then also locally, but also nationally. And when you do them, there's, first of all, a big part of it is reminding people of why we even need to have models and, um, and could sort of starting with that discussion of, you know, when, when are things not going well? What do, when have been those times that you've phoned it in? You are overwhelmed by the chaos of it and a model or some structure could have been helpful. And so once people buy in on the fact that, you know, maybe it would be good to have a strategy here, um, then I think people are really open to hearing about all kinds of models. Um, and then lastly, just ending with, and I think this is, uh, Ryan touched on this just a moment ago, is um, just having grace for yourself, some compassion. This is not going to be perfect every time. 100% of the cases are not going to have a teaching rule, a general rule. But if it goes from 20% to 50% or 50% to 75%, that's phenomenal. And this is a lifetime of work. So we are all improving and I'm nowhere close to the teacher that I hope to be, you know, 10, 20 years from now. Alka, that reminds me of one of my favorite uh, Peloton instructor phrases, which is progress over perfection. And I think that that really kind of uh, hits the nail on the head because I think we are all just trying to get better, right? And And make that progress. And I think when you can kind of break down also for the learner that just like you said, I'm not perfect and here's what I'm working on and, you know, kind of getting opening up that honest space and that brave space to get that feedback really helps us make that 20 to 30 percent or 20 to 50 percent improvement. The counter to that is there's times it goes really well. And I think it's worth reflecting on why did this go so well today? And I think we often are like, oh, that just happened. And it's something, you did something, right? Something, the, the, the stars align in a way. And it's worth reflecting on that as well. I think we're all very good at reflecting when, or being critical of ourselves. So I think giving yourself some grace, but also celebrating and the success and triumph when you have a session that just really rocks. On a side note, we do need to have a podcast just about how you can apply Peloton teaching to <laughs> medical teaching just as an aside. Can I just Maybe tell you? With Adrian. <laughs> yes, I would love that because without a doubt, I either drop Peloton lines or Ted Lasso references like yes. every clinic session. And sometimes my fr- and uh, every podcast. And <laughs> Molly knows too well. Literally some of the, the residents I work with are like, so is that from Ted Lasso or is that a recent Just Sims class? <laughs> you took and I'm like it might be both I don't really remember at this point but yeah. here's to season three is coming out soon but we should probably move on to the next case yeah all right well let's jump into our second case from Cashlock Memorial Trent is a second year resident in the same clinic as Joe he's enjoyed continuity clinic this year even more than intern year because he knows his primary care patients well at this point at the end of his second year of residency He's even considering primary care as a career because of his clinic experience, yay, (laughs) as opposed to the hospitalist job he thought he was going to have after training. He's really improved his clinical knowledge this year, and the faculty have told him so. Trent enjoys working with most of the faculty in his clinic. He just wishes they would precept for a shorter time and get to the point already. 
If they want to change his plan, just tell him why and he's all for it. He's still learning after all. So Ryan, first, what are you thinking when it comes to trans experience in clinic? Is this a common scenario? And if you were a trans faculty mentor, how would you advise him in this moment? Yeah. I mean, first, I'm thrilled for Trent. He's going under a great career in primary care. It Absolutely. sounds like his <laughs> medical knowledge is just building. I mean, it sounds like he's really having a good time. And I think he's getting to that point where he's starting to feel like he can be more, more independent. And he's certainly shown that. And feeling that, like we probably all did, that all of a sudden waiting for the preceptor, getting behind becomes a challenge. So, you know, if I was Trent's faculty mentor, you know, I think there's a few things I you, you might point out. First, there may be opportunities to kind of manage up and, and mention or talk to your preceptor. Could we try this precepting in the presence of the patient? Or, you know, I've heard about this new model of SNAPs when I was at on this podcast or um, at, at SGEM, and, you know, maybe we could give this a shot. So those are a couple of things you might. I think it's also worth noting for the, for the resident at this stage that a lot of, especially in primary care, there's often not black and white. There can be shades of gray. And to not close yourself off to maybe learning some of the nuance or the way someone else might manage this, because I think all those things can be helpful in your eventual practice. Um, and I don't know that Trent's doing that, but I think that can be where some residents get to. They kind of have the way they're going to do it, and they you know, don't really see what's so different about the, the other route. I also love Trent. Clearly, we all want to be his mentor now. But he's at that sweet spot in continuity clinic learning curve where he knows his patients and he's starting to feel the beginning of some mastery and he's starting to feel the magic of continuity. This is where you can actually make strides sometimes in difficult chronic diseases because the patient knows you and is starting to trust you. And so I think there's a whole kind of host of patient relationship and long-term continuity relationship management lessons here that you can start to talk to Trent about, about you know having a plan that maybe today the patient isn't changing their mind, but how do you lay the groundwork for maybe having that conversation next time? So I, I, I love this stage. It comes so much later in outpatient medicine medicine than inpatient. Even after a month of inpatient medicine, interns are can clearly see the arc of growth. An outpatient that literally, I think this is very appropriate, it does tend to sort of happen in the second year at some point where they start to feel comfortable. So um, so I think as, as outpatient educators, you have to be really cognizant of that. Really, even a junior resident who on the inpatient setting seems so masterful is really probably pretty shaky still in the outpatient setting and may need that extra support and reassurance. So I, I would say that about Trent and totally agree that he's ready for snaps. He doesn't even need to tell his preceptor. That's the cool thing about snaps, right? He doesn't have to tell his preceptor. He can just go for snaps based on his mentor's advice. So, or he can suggest PIP. I love that. And I, I also wonder, like, I, I feel seen by both Joe and Trent, because uh, this may or may not um, feel familiar uh, to me. But I wonder for both of y'all, if if you were, let's say, Joe, or maybe even another faculty member overhearing Trent, the resident, talk about his experience where he feels like the preceptors just take so long and, and you know, if they want to just change their plan, just do it. I, I wonder if you're hearing that, how does that affect kind of how you teach? Or maybe it means that you kind of 
do a little bit of, I heard, you know, that maybe we could try out this model. Like, do, how does it affect you on a, like, let's say you were the person who was about to precept uh, Trent next. Would you change anything specific right away? Maybe, Alka, do you want to go first? Yeah, I think if a learner is asking for a little bit more autonomy, is how I'm seeing this, then I think that is usually you have to judge that, obviously, as the preceptor clinically, whether the right things are happening. But I think that's usually a good sign that you do need to, again, go to some of those more general questions. What do you want to do? What, what should we do next? Okay. And let them move forward with the plan. And I think there's another thing that kind of this hints at, which is that there's a tendency in uh, medical education, because we're all kind of kind and want to communicate in a kind way, that we tend to say, well, that's also true. That could be right, but here's another way to do it. We, and I think learners see through it often because they're like, well, actually, I don't think you think that's what it is. You're just saying that to be nice. You know? So I think sometimes direct communication is more respectful, especially the advanced learner is like, I think that was totally off, actually, Dr. Ray. Like, maybe maybe you should just tell the resident, um, that's not what we should be doing, and here's why, and let me direct you to the resource or the guidelines that show me that. So I think that's another thing to take away from here, that sometimes you just need to be more direct. Yeah, I think, and like Alika mentioned, I think PIP here is is really nice and may give you as the faculty some additional insight into that in-the-room communication, physical exam skills, counseling. Um, there's a lot here that I think we can be surprised by sometimes when we go into the room and, and kind of realize, whoa, I didn't realize you were staring at the computer screen the entire time. And there's some definitely some things that we can provide feedback on and, and you know, help guide our, our learners to becoming better um, better physicians. Totally. I feel like the PIPP also offers so many data streams, right? You get the data stream of like, what's this person like managing the EMR? What's this person, what are they doing with the physical exam? Kind of introducing more areas where direct communication and a really open and honest and brave feedback conversation can happen. Awesome. This has been amazing. I mean, I think just such practical tips and frameworks. And then also, I, I've loved hearing your pearls and, and your techniques. Do you have some main take-home points for our listeners? And maybe we'll start with you, Alika. Sure. I mean, I would say first to start with, clinic is a complex environment, but you still have to set a learning climate. So some of the basic tenets still hold. Set expectations, being kind, giving and asking for feedback. So all of those basic tenets apply. That being said, I think as we said, a lot of these models, without get drowning in the P's and all of the other letters, it's about being deliberate and intentional. Uh, you can choose your models and your tools and your questions with intention. You don't have to be a model purist. Just use what you think will work and keep getting feedback. And have fun. I mean, I think this is, we're all in this and it's a wonderful opportunity with our learners. And when we are kind of setting the stage of the excited you know, positive learning environment where we're kind of welcoming their thoughts and insight and expertise in the care of patients, then I think we're all better for it. So, um, yeah, it's exciting. And uh, I think if you enter with some uh, a plan, you're, you're going to come out on the other side a little better for it. Amazing. Thank you so much. <laughs> Do you have anything that y'all would like to plug? Resources, shows? Projects that you've published, things that you're proud of. 
I think we we would like to plug being a part of national organizations. We've both benefited so much from them. There is so much faculty development to be had, so much, I think, career development to be had. So I certainly think even at the student level to start getting involved in organizations like SGIM, like APTM, like SHM is has been fantastic for so many people we know and, and also, I think, for us. Absolutely. Wonderful. Wonderful. So, Ira, what are you going to take home from this episode? What are you going to try out in clinic next week? Oh, Molly, this was just such a great episode. I felt like I was talking to my pals and we were all learning together. I think one of the things that I'm going to take away is that clinic is so chaotic and can be a chance for us to potentially get overwhelmed just as often learners do in the clinic environment. And I think just kind of reminding myself to take a deep breath, have also grace and compassion for myself and trying to figure out that maybe using the all these potpourri models every single time and having that expectation for myself is a little bit can be a high bar and just reminding myself that there's certain things that you know I can do. I can be deliberate. I can be intentional with my teaching. I can get across that I um, care about the learning that's happening in the clinic and that I want to kind of share uh, some a teaching point, a small teaching point with the learners and being kind of open to what that teaching pearl might be. It might be about how to do a cervical gonorrhea and chlamydia swab, or it might be um, how we think about certain diagnostic tests and their sensitivity and specificity. So just being open and kind of uh, giving myself that grace. What about you? Wonderful. Um, yeah, I, a lot stood out to me. I mean, there were just so many great points. I think their point of using the three different models, or I guess four different models, if we include the traditional model, using bits and pieces from those and using those kind of inter out throughout the the clinic encounters that we don't have to just say, today I'm going to do one minute preceptor um, and do that with all of the patients, but really kind of looking at what does this learner need? What is the time frame that we have? What really fits best in this case? And having these different techniques to fall off on. The other one that I really like that I'm sure I've heard before, but I always forget is I I feel like I struggle. We have so many wonderful third-year residents who are just amazing. And I'm like, what possibly can I teach you? You know everything. Um, so I really like that idea of trying to ask about hypotheticals and sort of pushing them to think beyond this, the immediate case in front of us. I also love the post-it board idea. So we don't really have a centralized space in my clinic yet, but we might soon. So uh, that, that might be a, a work in progress. I love it. I love it. And I also feel like I want to learn more about the levels of listening. I kind of want to be like, how do I introduce <laughs> level three versus level five? And what are the places for that? But How many levels are there? I mean, you know, I don't know. I think five, but who knows? That's why I got to take that class. I mean, another episode about that. Another episode. Yes. <laughs> All right. This has been another episode of our Curbsiders mini series, The Curbsiders Teach. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com slash teach. A special thanks to Dr. Matt Watto and Dr. Paul Williams for their support in this project, and to Dr. Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music, and to Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. Also a special thanks to our social media team, Andrew Delat on Instagram, John Ong on Twitter, and Tima Karganoff on our website. And I would encourage you to check out our social media venues because we offer awesome infographics, great graphics, um, and a lot of resources on those. 
Totally agree. Our social media presence is increasing. And as always, <laughs> we're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do so, we really need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsidersteach at gmail.com. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all health professionals at curbsiders.bcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. I'm Dr. Ira Krzyzanowska. Thank you so much for joining us today and letting us bring you a little nugget of medical edutainment. And until next time, I've been Dr. Molly Hoiblein. 